What's up, friends? Tyler Staten sitting here with John Thompson, a new friend of mine from Sanctus Church in Toronto, Canada. This is a follow-up podcast from a deliverance workshop that he led for us last night, at least last night as of the moment that we're actually talking now, (laughs) probably not last night as of the moment that you listened to this. So first, I do want to say that if you are tuning into this podcast and you have not heard the two teachings on deliverance ministry that he did uh, to our church, stop listening to this now. Go back and listen to or watch those first. They're both available uh, on our podcast feed and on our websites. And then come back to this, because this is meant to be a follow-up conversation from that. And if you have taken in those teachings, as a reminder, John taught last night first on defining what demonization is biblically and giving us a baseline theological foundation for understanding what on earth is happening in the gospel accounts when Jesus is casting out demons, what on earth is going on in the New Testament letters when the Apostle Paul continues to write about battles that we have with principalities and powers and forces and darkness, and why is it that the church is largely silent on something that the Scripture is quite loud on? Uh, And then a second teaching on spiritual gifts, Because if we're actually going to work this out, if we're actually going to have deliverance ministries in our churches and practice this ministry in a responsible and biblical way, then we've got to understand spiritual gifts and their role uh, in actually taking up this battle against principalities and powers and forces. So that's a a quick recap. John, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. So here's where I'd like to start today. Um, No one writes a book on demonic deliverance just on mild theological interest alone. So (laughs) I am interested in discovering what was your way in? Like, what was the inciting incident that for you led you on this journey to now becoming someone that bounces around to churches that are ministering in cities where people are primarily intellectual, that... Uh, might even lean towards the therapeutic, that have a very large and important understanding of mental illness and of all of these different forces that inform us and talks about demons to people. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I think before I get to the inception point of my own journey, I think the other thing is that, um, I'll just use this example because you and I both lead uh, Alpha Ministries in our church. Right. The thing I love about Alpha is it's intellectually engaging and experientially aware. And I think that is the tension, even in the book I wrote, in our own experience, because we have to be profoundly intellectually engaging uh, to our city audiences and still be open to the experience. And so uh, our whole ministry worldview is based actually on that. And even a conversation about deliverance, like I talked about last night, the role of therapy, the role of medicine, but also the role of this all has to be integrated well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, you know, I don't know if you, I don't know what studies you've formally done, but a lot of times in, in uh, undergrads or master's degree, if you do something in the area of theology, uh, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll talk about a leadership timeline. I don't know if you ever did one of these where they say, hey, go back when you were 30 to 25, 25, and what books impacted you, what life experiences impacted you. It's a formation thinking thing. Yep. Uh, What people tend never to do is do that with experiences. Hmm. And so one thing, you know, as I look back across my run, I'm 46 now, and I've been in formal ministry for 23 years. 
uh, I had an encounter two or three times. I was uh, overseas, actually with Operation Mobilization, smuggling Bibles into North Africa pre-9-11, uh, in the middle of Spain, thousands of uh, all the fields around me. And there were some demonic experiences I had there. What period of your timeline so is I that? So I was like 16, 17, 18 okay. years old in that, yeah. in that timeline. Um, uh, and then even beyond that, uh, when I became a youth pastor, the, the major moment for me happened when a young 14-year-old girl in our youth group came and said, uh, something is following me in my house and described it. And I didn't believe her because she had a, she had a habitual lying problem. And I just didn't believe her. Yeah. It was just like, you know, you're a 14-year-old girl. That's a tough girl. combination of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the incident happened at a sleepover where another girl who I trusted, who had actually grown up uh, in Senegal, uh, said, no, it's legit. I was there. And so I remember having no clue what to do. I'd had spiritual experiences before, but wasn't totally sure how to work that out. And so the first encounter I had like that directly was I called her in and said, hey, I believe you. And I got two people to pray with me. We had no context for this. And as we're sitting in the boardroom in our church, we were, I was just going to say, like, you know, I don't know. I read a Neil Anderson book, and in Jesus' name, leave her alone. And I looked up, and I could see into her house five miles away. And I saw the thing. And I was like, what's going on? Hmm. And so I said, in Jesus' name, you can't, you can't touch her anymore, and you can't bother her in the living room. Because that's where I saw it in my head, I suppose. And I was like, oh, I have no clue what's going on. Yeah, can I can I ask you to take us into your mental picture? Yeah, just no, for those who are like, yeah, what do you mean you saw the yeah, thing? Sorry. Is, I, yeah, sorry. Well, again, like from last night, gift of discernment, but didn't know I had the gift of discernment. Right. And I was sitting in a boardroom, but in my mind's eye, I could see in a living room like environment and saw this thing standing there. And I was like looking at it and it was looking at me. That's how. And so what I did, did the thing look like? Oh, I don't remember. That was years ago. Okay. I'm sure it was something bad or yeah. missed. Or but something. but it's, it, it had an appearance. That oh, you it had an appearance. Knew this is a demonic One presence. million percent. It was, <laughs> yeah. I could just, you could tell, right? So in that case, you know, I told it to leave her alone in the living room and prayed. And we said, amen. And then I think we went back to capture the flag or whatever we're doing in the group. <laughs> and, uh, and she came back a week later and said, John, I can only sleep in the living room. I said, what do you mean? She said, well... You told it it couldn't bother me in the living room. And I was like, what? Like, I, what do you mean? So I prayed again, and then she was never bothered again. I was like, this doesn't fit any of my theological categories. Hmm. So that began asking all sorts of questions. Like, I'm an MK. Like I've said, I'm a third culture kid. I've grown up around the world. Uh, my doctorate is in missiology. It's in intercultural studies. So it's not a culturally biased enlightenment worldview. I just didn't have the categories theologically to work this through. There had been other experiences in my own life that got clarified. Remember I talked about that timeline? Yeah. When this started happening, I went backwards and suddenly realized there was two or three things that happened to me when I was a child. And I went, oh, I need to think about all this now. Yeah, I, I feel like you're hitting on something important, which uh, I know in my own story as well, having had similar experiences to the ones you're describing right now, that we often have experiences that we don't have theology for. The categories, that's right. And then later gain the theology for our experiences. Right. But if we don't go back to those experiences and reinterpret them through the theology that we gain later, right. then they remain a mystery to us. But that's actually what we see in the scriptures again and again. Like if you read the book of Acts, yep. it's basically— Jesus followers having experiences that they have no theology for, right. then dialoguing with Jesus in prayer about those experiences, and then gaining theology for what they've already experienced. And being affirmed in community. And if mm -hmm. I could just say, like, 
my my whole journey of being a pastor in a more conservative environment in a multicultural city, both books I wrote, Convergence and Deliverance, are actually theological primers for conservative Christians to get categories to start interpreting experience. Because I found growing up in conservative environments, we were taught experience was dangerous. Yeah. And and but the scriptures teach that you can't dismiss experience, you have to interpret it. Mm-hmm. And when you're leading a large megachurch, who has time to ex- interpret everyone's experience? Right. So we're like, can't do it. But that's what Paul teaches. That's what Peter teaches. It's what Jude teaches. Like, it's just all through it. What's the source? What the source? So the journey in my own life um, and then with our communities, these, this is the, these two books are the output of trying to get right categories to build unity in a lexicon and unity in experience to help interpret. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll tell you a funny example. Remember, like I shared at the teaching, like grew up in a conservative church, never had any weird supernatural experiences really. But one of my favorite places on earth is, is Disney World. I'm like a Disneyholic. So I always <laughs> say that there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God that lasts, but there's another kingdom I don't mind called that, Disney World. That is confusing because of the amount of jokes you've made to me about America in the last oh, 24 hours. Uh, but that aspect of no, American oh, no, culture, I, I love you're it. All I'm, all, I'm all, I'm all, and so are my kids, and I just yeah. love it. And uh, and so uh, in the 80s, uh, showing my age, in the 80s when, when we used to fly back from Ecuador, we'd go to Disney World for two or three days. So it's a nostalgia thing for me. Yeah. And um, and so. There used to be a ride there called Mr. Toad's Ride, which many people will not even remember anymore. It's out of an English novel. And the scary thing about Disney is almost all their stories are really terrible if you really think about them, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is like you're on this journey through all, all this English countryside. And the very end of the ride, you turn a corner, a big gust of wind hits you, and you see a train coming for you, and you get hit by the train. You die. Isn't it a lovely kid's story, right? Yeah. And then you go to hell. So you actually turn this corner, and there was these animatronic demons uh, in the ride. In the ride at Disney. And again, uh, I love Disney. I'm all for it. And when I was very young, remember, zero charismatic experience. I stood up in the cart and said, in Jesus' name, you can't have me. My parents were like, sit down. Like, what are you doing? How old are you? I was like seven or eight. Okay. I had no context for this. And the reason why I'm sharing this story is not so you all think I'm crazy. Why I'm sharing this story is um, I became a Christian at three. I had the the classic evangelical Sunday school teacher told me about Jesus, went home with my mom, knelt with her, and I remember it. I know that many people, that's not their story. It doesn't need to be their story. You don't need an inception point to understand you're a follower of Christ, you know, directly. Um, But that, when I started understanding what my spiritual gift matrix was years later, it made sense. So this is a really important thing to to walk through is what happened to you post-conversion and why, you know, it's the rule of dots. It happens to you once, interesting. Happens to you twice, more interesting. Keeps happening to you. Why does this keep happening to you? Yeah. And that's just a, a helpful filter Pattern. we've used in our own community. Yeah, and, you know, I know this would this is jumping ahead then into, because I both know you and have read your writing. Yeah. Uh, your story from there, you continued to have experiences oh, yeah. with the demonic and it seems like at an increased volume after that first encounter. So if, you know, say that there's a believer listening to this that has one experience and responds in a biblical way, would you say you you should probably look out for uh, more experiences to snowball after that? Yeah, no. Like what I would say is every Christian on earth is going to encounter the demonic. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, we we're the living target for them. So 
almost every Christian I know in one point of their life or another has a moment where they're, they sense evil or they walk in a bookstore and like, I got to get out of here. Like we've all had those moments. That's just part of living in a fallen world and, and resisting. What happened with me is after I had that prayer time, and there are some even before that were sort of the primer for this thing, people started walking up to me and just saying, I have to talk to you. And I'm like, about what? And they're like, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but, and it was in our church and I knew these people and it wasn't public. We didn't like announce this. It happened more and, and more. And you're still and more. the youth pastor. I'm still the youth point. pastor. And like yeah. adults are walking up, elders are walking up and we hadn't announced it. We didn't preach that way. And so there was just this sovereign organic thing that started. And so if it patterns out, you know, like I shared uh, last night, the very first thing you need to make sure is you yourself are actually functioning out of the power of God and not out of flesh or something demonic. So, you know, some people listening today, you're like, wow, that happens to me all the time. I'm like, yeah, stop, drop, and roll. Immediately go to the true Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father and say to him, like, if any of this stuff is not from you, you can remove it from me. I want nothing to do with it. But if it keeps pattering out, then you have a new set of questions to ask. If there's a spiritual gift orientation or if God is sovereignly starting a, a, a moment. Yeah, and it sounds like you're also saying that if you have had one or two random experiences at some point in your journey, but it doesn't seem to be a pattern, yeah, just, then you're probably just a Christian. Correct. James yeah. 4, 7, Ephesians 6, not if the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, I, I always say with spiritual gifts, the rule of dots is really important. The second thing is usually Christians around you probably know your spiritual gifts before you do. One of the best things to do is not take a test, but come up with a, a common script and then sit with a group, bunch of Christians that know you well and say, so what do you think? Because usually they're going to be like, oh, it's so obvious, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like when you do a personality test and he goes, oh, yeah. oh you're an Enneagram 6, it's so obvious, or Myers-Briggs or whatever you use, yeah. right? So I think that, and then the last one maybe just to say is you tend to know where you're spiritually gifted is where you're pissed off at church. This is really important. Yeah. Where you're angry is usually where you're gifted. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13 is right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Yeah. Because you need a character. But usually where you're very frustrated in a church community almost always is a revelation moment for you of actually where you're spiritually gifted. Yeah, and the growth edge then would be yeah, the, character. the the <laughs> reason that you're given the gift mm-hmm. is not to critique the body, but for the building up of the body. Correct. And so you need to learn to steward that gift with love for brother and sister and also begin to realize that there's 21 gifts in 21 directions and why are you presuming that person across from you should be doing your job mm-hmm. like that that gift tension thing is just so real yeah 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 so one thing you said to me last night i think it was in between your teachings yeah which was your your main objective in your first teaching was simply to show people that the battle we're in is real right what do you mean by that yeah, so I think especially with a North American evangelicalism, we have been taught really good, uh, like I said last night, upstairs theology and terrible downstairs theology. Mm-hmm. And the the shadow side of I'm predestined, I'm elected, I'm saved, I'm adopted, I'm, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, you know, all the good identity stuff that everyone's taught for years is suddenly there was this um, false connection. So since that's all true, I'm safe. And, and it's just not true. <laughs> so, you know, what I, I was preaching this in another community a few months ago, and I said, if, if you believe that being a Christian equals you're safe, what do you do with the 3,000 people in 2020 who were killed for just being Christians globally? Did they not have enough faith? What do you do with the book of Revelation 
where Jesus walks among seven real churches and he says to one or two of them, by the way, you're going to be persecuted. One of you might die and it's from Satan. Hmm. So, you know, as, as, as we are becoming more globalized and we're interacting with the global church, and isn't it amazing? I'm so thankful as a North American that the church is exploding globally. Like we could all disappear in North America today and the church would be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, praise God yeah. for that. I love it. Um, but I think the heart of it is, is as we become more global, we become more biblical and persecution's real. And like 3,000 buildings were burned or, or shut down, you know, last year, according to, you know, uh, open doors. So this, this spiritual conflict, whether it's done through a governmental system uh, uh, or through an individual or personally experienced, is real. And it's, we've got to let the scriptures, this is my plea all the time. We as conservative Christians, and I mean that in the best sense, fought for the authority of scripture. So why don't we believe what we fought for? This is what I just don't understand. Like the scriptures say we'll be persecuted. Not if, when. That's what he says. Jesus is the model, right? According mm -hmm. to 1 Peter. So I'm like, if if that's true, I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to have an abandonment issue. But I'm just like, the scriptures are clear. Like I like we said last night, your security is guaranteed and your ceiling is guaranteed and, and your safety is not. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one thing that this veers into uh, and an observation that I have had from pastoring two communities now during the COVID-19 pandemic yep. is that in the North American church, we have a very shallow or just underdeveloped theology of suffering. Billion percent. <laughs> and I mean this yeah. gently because I, I observe it in me yep. too. Yep. But it seems that often we are very for the mission until confronted with the cost. Well, with suffering. Yeah, and then we see just how much we do depend on comfort or, or just prefer or rely on or run to comfort. I just think, you know, and so if we gain a biblical understanding that our safety is not guaranteed— then we immediately enter into a developing a dignified view of suffering right. as one of the things that Jesus uses right. to redeem the world, yeah. which is extremely biblical and actually all over the pages of the New Testament letters, many of which Paul is writing from prison Correct. in the midst of suffering. Yeah. And— our symbol's a cross. Yeah. Like, yeah. And and in our context, we talk, we built our discipleship model on guaranteed places of encounter. And so you know, we said, instead of doing a linear discipleship sort of thing, I take class A, B, C, and D, we went. Uh, what are the guaranteed places so of encounter? So scripture says that God is everywhere, but he comes close in certain places. Uh, that every time the gospel is preached, he's, he's there. It's the power of God. Every time the Bible is open, it, the Lord Jesus' spirit is present. Uh, spiritual gifts, he's present. Spiritual disciplines, baptism and communion. I don't think he's in the elements, but he's present at the table, uh -huh. right? And and the last one is suffering. And I've taught this for years in our church that, you know, Paul says at the end of his life in Philippians, I want to participate. I want to know Christ. I'm like, you want to know Christ? You've already been to the third heaven. Like, what? And at the end of his life, he's pleading for to know Jesus even more. And he says, I want to participate in his sufferings. And that is a guaranteed place of encounter. And so when we, and suffering for Christians takes two forms. The first one is self-denial. When we want to do something that the Bible explicitly or implicitly says is sinful, and we deny ourselves, that is worship and suffering unto Christ. And that's how we walk with Jesus to the cross. 
And the same thing is for persecution. That's a whole nother conversation. Small p persecution, big b persecution. But that is a guaranteed place of encounter. And and it's just throughout the scriptures. Like, again, I, I wish I had the passage in front of me where in 1 Peter, Peter literally says, Christ suffered, leaving all of you an example that you must follow him. So, so to me, suffering is critical. And the deconstruction moment we're seeing across much of um, our churches, I am convinced, is rooted in this thing that they were promised that they would not suffer. Mm. And now they're suffering. They're like, I'm not into this. It's not just intellectual. I've never met a real atheist who's intellectually an atheist. It always starts in the moment of pain. Always. Yes, I agree. And even the brilliant, the, mess, the best, the best, goes back brilliant, to experience, hundred yeah. percent. And I think so much of the deconstruction we're seeing. Yes, there's church abuse. Yes, there's lack of theological grounding and all that stuff. But deeper than that, we told our people they'd be okay, and they're not. Yeah, I have. This is could be a, a rabbit trail, but yes. I'm genuinely <laughs> curious about it. Yeah, I, I love the discipleship around guaranteed places of encounter. One that seems I'm interested that you didn't name is in the poor. You know, Matthew 25, Jesus promises to be found in in, in the, the poor. poor and I would agree with that too, 100%. And it, what I looked for when we did this conversation was where in the scriptures does it say, if I walk into that environment, whether I feel him or not, I know he says he's here. And so that's another great one that should be added. And what we did in our community is every year, so we'll do this in January, we do this um, We do this matrix with our church where they do a self-evaluation in all the guaranteed areas of where they're doing well or not well, and they choose two areas to lean into for the year, and that's their discipleship journey. I love that. So it's a circle, yeah. and you're in the center, and then you've got these that you sprawl out and you say, you know, um, another guaranteed place of encounter we talk about is is gathered worship. I inhabit the praises of my people, mm-hmm. right? Another guaranteed place is where two or three gather in my name, I'm present. So what happened is the expectation in our community radically changed because when we actually said, you will meet him here, people went, I'm going to meet him there. And the worship culture changed and the expectation changed, going to small group change, going to communion change because people are like, I'm about to encounter Jesus himself. And I'm like, right. You, you literally are. Some people say, I don't feel him. It doesn't matter. What does the scripture say? He's there. So even you're a pastor, I'm a pastor. Mm-hmm. You ever had a day where you didn't want to preach and you weren't excited to go to church? Yeah, all of us. And so the reorientation for me when I discovered guaranteed places of encounters, I would pray in the car, okay, Jesus, it doesn't matter who's leading worship today. It doesn't matter how excellent it is today. All the things you and I think about, I am literally, because people are going to worship Spiritual gifts are going to be used. The word of God is going to be opened. The gospel is going to be proclaimed. This is a this is a multiplicity moment of encounter. So I'm coming expecting because I'm going to meet you. Changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get back into the deep weeds here. Okay. So first, I, I, I want to get to the million-dollar question okay. about demonization. Sure. But let's lay the primer first. What is demonic possession or demonization, I should say, in the Gospels. Can you just give a quick definition for the average person that's like, hey, I'm reading through Scripture, and then suddenly Jesus (laughs) encounters someone in a graveyard, asks him his name, his name's Legion, apparently there's lots of demons in him, sends him into some pigs, and then they all commit suicide. What on earth is that? Yeah, that's reality, by the way, everyone. Uh, So yeah, let me work this out. So there are three words that need to be sort of defined to help people. Oppression, demonization, and possession. Those three words, that you need three in the lexicon, not one. Possession means ownership. 
Demonization means to be vexed, tormented, or to have something. And oppression means an external force that's tempting you. All three of those things are very different. Say that one more time. No those problem. Three. So possession is ownership mm-hmm. um, in the truest sense. Demonization is to have something that vexes, torments you, and it's internal. And then oppression is external and tempts you. So every Christian is oppressed. Mm-hmm. Every Christian on earth, you know, uh, when the day ta- when the day of temptation comes, stand. So all of us are oppressed. Uh, if you're a Christian, you can't be possessed by the devil because you're possessed by the spirit. But like we found out yesterday, uh, but you can be demonized uh, by a demonic spirit and possessed by the Holy Spirit at the same time. What we're seeing in the Gospels is a mix of both. In certain cases, Luke 13, you have a pr- woman in right relationship who's experiencing she is in right relationship with God and also is demonized. In the Legion account, you have someone who is actually possessed by the demonic, like literally filled, and also owned by the other side. Two different things. So deliverance ministry, by the way, especially because we're in Portland, I need to say this. Almost everything I talked about last night was to a Christian and working out a sanctification issue. Mm-hmm. The thing I didn't address last night is deliverance, exorcism, releasing prayer, whatever you use, word you use, uh, radical loving encounter can become the moment of evangelism too. Okay, so pause one second. Yeah. Because I want to go in a couple different directions Great. from there. The million dollar question I was referring to is that can a Christian be demonized question. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you know, because you do a lot of teaching on this, that's the penny that everyone's waiting to drop. Yeah. Is where do you where do you stand on this? What do you think? So you've you've already showed your hand, but can you quickly and you did some teaching on this last night, but just give a quick understanding of can a Christian be demonized? And then let's talk about the difference between demonization yeah. and exorcism. Yeah, sure. Uh sure. Yeah. So uh like I said last night, Christians absolutely can be demonized. A hundred percent. And to make this very quick, in Greek, there are five words for possession or ownership of an item. And uh, you can read it in the book or read other people. They mm-hmm. all talk about it. And every time you see the word possessed in the New Testament, none of them are used. So it, every time you see possession in the English translation, it doesn't mean ownership. It just means to have, to be vexed, to be tormented. So you, when you read the person was demon possessed, thinks ownership. But that's actually not what the Greek says. It just means to have. And there are occasions in the scriptures, one is in Luke 13 that you talked about yep. last night, where a Christian— Well, is, she's not a Christian. It's pre-cross, but mm-hmm. a one in right relationship. But Ephesians 4. Yes, there are instances in the scripture yes. that point clearly to the fact that someone who is a Christian that is filled with the Holy Spirit— Correct. —can be vexed and tormented— Internally. Yeah, by by demonic forces. Correct. However, that person can never be possessed. Correct, because possession is positional, <laughs> and you are possessed. You are sealed until the day of redemption. That's why in Ephesians 4, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, you got to read it. He says you can give room inside of yourself, topos, because of habitual sin to a demonic being. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit is grieved but not removed. It still says till the day of redemption. Another great example, Ananias and Sapphira, absolutely mm-hmm. are examples of this. Uh, even pre-cross, um, one of the things we didn't Good, talk about Because last, Peter says to them, you oh, have given yourself over to yeah, Satan. You are filled yes. with Satan, yeah. 100%. Uh, but, and then, then conservative scholars saying, oh, they weren't Christians. Of course they were Christians. Uh, another one is, you know when Peter says to Jesus, hey, listen, you don't need to die on the cross. Yeah. And Jesus turns around and says, be quiet, Peter. No, no. What does he say? Be quiet, Get behind Satan. me, Satan. And it's so funny when you ha- really sit with that. 
I'm not sure Peter spoke. Like, the, in, the idea that came out of Peter's mouth was symbiotic with Satan. Just saying. Okay. Yeah. So then let's talk about, you said what you didn't touch on last night is the difference between, you know, praying for healing from being vexed, tormented, demonized. Yes. And straight up exorcism, which would be praying for freedom from the demonic for someone who is not saved. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's three things that are really important. Allegiance, truth, and power. Okay. So uh, allegiance is always about wh- who owns you. And we did talk about this last night. Either mm-hmm. you're owned by Satan, the kingdom of darkness, or the kingdom of light. The scriptures are clear. Everyone's owned by one of two sides, positionally. Um, when I was referring to, and you can use the word exorcism, by the way, even for Christians being set free. It applies in both directions. Because okay. allegiance has to be what side it owns you. Then the next round is what is the truth? And what lies have I believed? What doors do we need to close? How the demonic got in? What do I need to repent of? Who do I need to forgive? Uh, what healing do I need? And then the power moment is you got to tell them to leave. And, and just as a side note, uh, most conservative Christians pray, but they never command. And this is really important. That Jesus never prayed demons way. He commanded them to leave after he got permission. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we talk about Christians being demonized and walking through and getting freedom, allegiance has to be clear. Truth has to be established, and then power. And you need all three. It's like another three-legged stool. When it comes to um, evangelism, there are just multiple moments we see in the Gospels and also around churches all the time where someone is demonized, and in the moment, the Spirit of God tells the person, no, you tell those things to leave. And that moment of leaving becomes the moment where they go, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they and they become followers of Christ. Yeah, it's it's a power encounter it, that a, leads to relationship. That, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the patterning might be the same, but one is conversion esque and one is sanctification, mm-hmm. and we need both both taking place. The reason why many local churches that are very faithful are full of spiritual holes is because they don't have this category. So, thousands of Christians who are faithful, God fearing, discipleship oriented, Orthodox people are actually living in a perpetual state of internal civil war, which completely grieves the spirit and also at the same time uh, makes our churches ineffective. Yeah, and so there is an inception point to talk about the practical nature of this. Yeah. Which I think for the average person listening to this, there's probably two, two major aspects that people are thinking about. Number one... How do I discern the difference between a health problem, a, hey, we all live in a fallen world, no one's protected, as you've already said, so I might suffer from clinical depression or pancreatic cancer or Or, migraines, you know? Sure. And there is a demonic attack on my life that is manifesting itself in a mental illness or a physical illness or an ongoing ailment or something like that. How how would one go about discerning the source of what is plaguing a person? Yeah, so uh, two, two things. I just want to reinforce what I did last night. Uh, I do not believe that every sickness uh, and every melt- mental illness is directly connected to the demonic. There have been, it's been really wild in our discernment process, even in the last year, some people came forward to get help. And when we prayed, the Holy Spirit told us it's mental illness, it's not demonic. And the theology, the the, the biblical understanding of that would be that 
the soil itself is cursed in Genesis yeah, because we, of sin. We just like live in a, the, the air that we breathe. Yes, we live in a broken, a legitimately broken world. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. and like I shared last night, a lot of people want it to be demonic because if it is, you can cast it out and be okay with it and you're healed. But that's not how this goes. So, And uh, and just, just because I want people to understand the biblical grounding for this, the the effects of sin are in creation itself in, in Genesis 3. Yes. And Colossians 1 talks about the fact that Christ is reconciling all things to himself Correct. through the cross. And Revelation 21 is the renewal of all things, including creation. creation. We're just living in the in-between. Right. And so we are we have two things that are infecting us all the time. There are actual forces of darkness yes. that are attempting to wreak havoc on our lives. Yeah. And there's just the fact that we live in a fallen world, and so bad things will happen to us. Correct. And we also are willful partners in sin, and mm -hmm. we cause things to go wrong. I'm not saying, by the way, you have cancer because you sin. I'm just saying we All also, of those are all, factors all in the equation. Are, exactly. Yeah. So uh, how do you find out if you're demonized or not? Well, let me do, do two things. Um, there are five entrance points, how the demonic uh, walk into someone. Uh, one of them, like we see in Ephesians 4, is habitual sin, where, and again, much every, actually every instance in Ephesians 4 where Paul refers to a door-opening event aren't supernaturally oriented. Bitterness, anger, like they don't feel like Ouija boards. They're just habitual sin. And he's very clear that unrepented habitual sin becomes a door-opening event. So that's the first way that demonization might take place. The second one is through sexual encounter. And this is really, really important that everyone catches this. So... Uh, we we now live in a sexual moment where we're basically Rome online. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah. right? And so if you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says when Adam and Eve came together, you know how it says in the Greek in the Hebrew version, they became one flesh. Mm -hmm. In the Greek version, it says they share one psyche. Okay. And so uh, it's been our experience multiple times that when people have multiple sexual encounters in any direction, uh, virtually, physically by themselves, that one flesh, one psyche moment becomes a door opening event, uh, not all the time, but sometimes. And, you know, not to be coy or funny, but literally like when you bond with someone else and they have demonic stuff, you're bound with them. So this, this becomes a real interesting moment that we've seen. The third one is, um, is when you play with fire, fire shows up. So, and again, you don't have to believe this for it to be true. See, especially, and I'll say this, in upper middle class, especially like Caucasian white culture, there's this belief that if I don't believe it, it has no effect on me. It's just a lie. So that, you're, and when you say you play with fire, fire shows yeah, up, you so mean like a kid playing with a Ouija, Ouija board. Ouija board, 100%. Uh, birds of a feather, light of, you know, lift levitation, Bloody Mary in the mirror, uh, tarot cards, uh, consulting the dead, uh, trying to find out the sex of your baby by a pin. That's, that's, that's witchcraft. Like, any way you try getting information you have no access to from a spiritual force other than the Lord is demonic. It, you're just playing with fire. This Even if you're doing it for as, fun. Oh. as a 16-year-old kid Irrelevant. at a high school party and Irrelevant. you think, oh, this is all just bogus. Irrelevant. They don't care. They don't care. Uh, I used to say uh, Mattel made Barbies and Mattel made Ouija boards. The Satan doesn't care that they're made by Mattel. Right. So if you play with fire, fire shows up. That's also true when it comes to worldview. It's true if you're coming from a different faith where you worshiped other gods, you were in a cult environment where you worshiped a false Jesus. All that stuff can become a door opening event. A hundred percent.
Uh, the, the next one is uh, very, very hard for North Americans to accept, but it's true. The Bible's written to communities first and then individuals second. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, most people around the world come from a worldview that what happens in my family or culture, it affects me. And so I've seen hundreds of cases where people come from environments or families or family systems where things have been invited into the family, whether through secret dedications or habitual sin or family patterns, and the demonic live within the family unit or live within the ethnic unit. And so you can say, well, that's not fair. And I'm going to say again, but this is a real war. So lots of you, uh, here's a great example. If you read the book of Acts carefully, every time the gospel goes to a new place, there's a fight. It's actually what we call turf wars. So if you read Acts very carefully, every single time the gospel goes to a new environment, there's a demonic encounter, every time. And lots of you who are listening today are first-generation Christians. And every time I interview a first-generation Christian and do diagnostic work with them on their spiritual life, uh, they will tell you that it's way harder for them than someone who has a second or third generation Christian experience. And when we really talk about it, they're actually the turf war for their family. Mm. So um, that's, you know, that will help some first generation Christians know today they're not crazy. Yeah. Uh, but deeper than that, uh, multiple times, uh, you know, if my grandfather's a Mason and he just did it because he was a lawyer and everyone's a lawyer and they did it. But they do all sorts of vows and stuff and they invite things in the family. That stuff has real power, even if you have nothing to do with it. Uh, and the last thing is it's actually trauma and abuse. And um, you got to be so careful with this one. But just imagine if you have a gash or a wound and you don't wash it out, what happens, right? The bacteria gets in, it gets, yeah, it gets infected. infected. And so one of the most difficult conversations we have with people is when they have gone through extreme trauma, slavery, rape, uh, all sorts of different things. And that vulnerability in the human moment, sometimes the demonic just hijacks. Uh, and it's not fair. And, and what's even more angering is they didn't do anything wrong. It was done to them. And even if it was done to them, the demonic just don't care because they're evil. So so let, let's let's sum up. Okay. Because you've just listed a lot of different potential door-opening door yeah. events. Yeah, right? potential. That's good. Yeah. So, so I'm praying with someone... They're, they've asked for a prayer for healing for this or that. I'm trying to discern yeah. what is the source right. behind this. Yeah. So I am discerning that by looking for, is there a door opening event? Yeah. That's... Or maybe I'm even just looking into my own story, saying right. what's the source of this. Has there been a door opening event? Correct. What else? Yeah. So once allegiance is clear, I am generally a follower of Jesus, yep. baptized in the spirit at conversion. And I would also encourage water baptism, by the way. I know it doesn't save you, but it matters. I just want to say that out loud to everybody. It matters. If you're a Christian listening to me today and you haven't been baptized yet, why? Jesus has commanded you. Just do it. Go. Here's water. Go get your pastor and get dunks, please. Here, here. here Continue. Like just, here. Yes. So after you've got that, then you see if there's these door opening events. Uh, and again, we've built a system to help people through this well. Right. Right. Like this is not ad hoc. Um yeah, I should clarify that. I'm not asking you this question so someone can listen to this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm not suggesting you go and try to do this. I'm trying to give you an understanding of how do you practice? How might one go about practicing what we see on the pages of Scripture? Because, you know, I think one of the greatest contributions that John Wimber gave to the church is he said, if you want to take something off the pages of Scripture— 
and see it alive in the church today, you need a theology, a model, and a practice. Right. So you need a biblical understanding. Then you need a, this is how we do this here. And then you actually need a way to practice and mature in that in the context of community. Correct. So what we are doing here is talking about theology yeah. and then just the very fundamentals of a model. Correct. So this is not an a invitation to go and practice. This is an invitation to understanding. Great. With that disclaimer, please continue. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so after allegiance is clear, then you look for doorways. Uh, one person brilliantly said, Chuck Kraft years ago said, imagine your life is like a hallway and a bunch of doors are open. And in the middle of the hallway is garbage and rats. He said, when you take time to repent, confess sin, forgive others, it's like all the doors are start getting closed and the garbage is swept out. If you don't close the doors and you don't sweep out the garbage, then the garbage, the rats still have something to come eat to and they can just come back through another door. So, you know, a lot of people tell things to leave and then they just come back three days later and they wonder what happened. Well, because they haven't done the sanctifying work to say, no, Jesus's lordship is welcome here and it's on the ground. So you, you do this. And then you said, well, how do I know? Well, this is where the church comes in because this isn't just me and Jesus. Like I said, this is a small C Catholic thing. This is a church thing. And so you need some people that have the gift of discernment to work alongside people and go, actually, yeah, uh, I, I do know that's demonic because I have that gift and I have character. And yes, that is true. So lots of people in environments aren't in places where the gifts are affirmed. So all they have is a list to say no and yes to things and closed doors, but they're still blind half the time. And that's what's so frustrating. After the doors are closed, you repented or began the process of forgiving or gone to counseling and the garbage is swept out, the rats are still there. And that's that's where Neil Anderson, for example, falls down. He goes all the way to the edge and says, okay, you're done. And I'm like, no, you have to tell them to leave. They're just not going to leave volitionally. Uh, and so the next moment, you just have to say like, you know, not in my power, but in the power of Jesus, you, you actually have to leave now and you can't come back. And so I think that's sort of the baseline of the model, but the discernment is in the middle. Where does scripture say I can be demonized or be worldly or sinful? Uh, what do I need to confess in community? Because it says in James 5, is anyone sick? It's interesting. You call on the elders of your church and you confess your sins one to another. Yeah. And this hidden thing is the critical thing. I mean, I believe occult in Latin means hidden. And like just Genesis 3, like Adam and Eve hid and our desire is to hide. And if we continually hide, then there's never freedom, even if we're predestined, elected, adopted, saved, and love Jesus lots. Because I would say this, I've said this many times in our community, when this conversation gets real close to people, it exposes that most Christians love God, but don't trust him. Mm. We absolutely love him, but we don't fully trust him. What do you mean by that? So many of us love the love of God and the holiness of God, and we love that we're going to be resurrected, and we know he's good. But weirdly enough, when he gets close, we're like, I still need to hide from you. Mm. I don't want to, and, and I, and, but he knows everything. Like, this is what I keep saying to people. He's good. Like, he's good. He's a good shepherd. He wants to, I've come to give life and life abundant. Like, I want to set you free. And, you know, what the demonic do in people, especially Christians, is they say, oh, it's too wicked. It's too evil. You know, it will cost you too much. I've been in so many sessions where even pastors and leaders uh, have had to consider losing their ministry. Because finally some secret comes out and they're like, do I want to lose my life? And I'm like, but do you want to gain it? So, you know, that's an extreme example, but in small examples too, like so many people are just embarrassed and shamed to talk about their sin. And I, you know, I, I used to say, 
I've seen in my local church every sin talked about Leviticus in depth. And if you actually know the sin list in Leviticus, that's a statement. Yeah. But I think that's the point. Like, if I can be, can I be brutally honest? I guess so. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Might um, as well. I'm just saying, like, um, and I'm not trying to be like shock value here, but like, I've had people come up to me and say, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed because I did something with an animal. Like, mm. we are the church. That's where that's got to come out. That's got to be because I've got to say to someone, hey, listen, Jesus said it's finished legitimately. And there is nothing too dark, too wicked, too hurtful, so painful, too traumatic that Jesus didn't bear. And so if you're going to be free from darkness, you got to be free from the stuff you've done. And to be free from the stuff you've done, whether it's big or small, you just got to be honest about it. You know what's interesting is I'm listening to you talk about these practical steps that one might take in pursuing redemption and identifying the source of what plagues them. You know what? It sounds a lot, there's a lot of overlap with the 12 steps. Oh, well, you know, like well, like basically go back, yeah. do a timeline, yeah, yeah. you know, ask forgiveness, make reconciliation, because do your work, all of that confess was rooted. yourself. Right. You know, there's a, basically there in in AA meetings in church basements throughout the country I live in, at least, yes. a lot of this work is being done. And then it stops short of Jesus is Lord, of course. But of course. But a lot of this work is being done through recovery groups. And the recovery groups all have their original source in mm-hmm. Christianity. Right. They've been divorced from the source. So now there's not power like there used to be. Yeah. But that's that's the best way to always think about this is you got to make sure your allegiance is clear. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Your baptism affirms you've committed to lordship. You go through what, what Neil Anderson would call a truth encounter where you're honest about rebellion and pride and sin and sexual history and all this stuff. And then, so we jokingly say, you got to be, use old names. You got, you got to meet Billy Graham, then you got to hang out with Neil Anderson, and then you need John Wimber to walk in the room to tell the suckers to leave. Those three steps is actually what you need to do. And in charismatic circles, it's only you tell them to leave, but you don't do all this hard work. Mm. In conservative circles that are open, it's only the truth stuff. And if I know the truth, the truth will set me free. But I'm like, truth doesn't tell things to leave. And I'm a pastor, and I, I exegetically preach. I always say this when I hang out with pastors all the time. I believe preaching is a center point of power. I guarantee play, when I get up to preach, God is going to speak. It's I know what's going to happen. But how many of my people are changed? Well, it's different because you've got to move from truth to power. So those three sort of things are the critical sort of, like I would say, overarching flow to freedom for a Christian. Yeah. So I'm painfully aware that we've been talking on a, I guess, like a practitioner level yep. a little bit. So I want to land by, I think, identifying the the big question that might just be on the everyday person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who is living in one of the cities I've lived in yes. in my adult life uh, that might be listening to this. And that is, you know, let's say hypothetically I I suffer from bipolar yeah. or I, I went through a string of panic attacks and yeah. have been on anxiety meds and they've really helped level me out. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that if if we take something like mental illness mm-hmm. and then try to cast a demon out of someone. Devastating. We can often give 
it, devastating because it can be manipulative or abusive. Also devastating because you can well up false hope in someone mm-hmm. that Jesus has freedom for you when the truth is I, I have friends in pastoral ministry that I deeply respect who minister with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And that in many ways is is their calling is to walk with Jesus in spite of this that plagues me. And of course, on famously on the pages of scripture, the apostle Paul has this one thorn that the Lord won't remove. Yep. And so, you know, obviously damage can be done by getting really excited that, oh, there might be freedom from this. Yeah. Damage could also be done by assuming that there are certain things right. like mental illness that God just can't touch. Correct. Um, and so I would love if you would share just one story about a time when you were ministering to someone who had physical or mental illness and recognized a demonic source and saw freedom. Yep. And then maybe one story where you're ministering to someone and you saw, you know what, I actually think that this is this is a cross for you to bear. And this is not a demonic thing. This is a we live in a fallen world thing. Yeah, I'd love to speak to that. One of the things in our own context, just to help with that conversation, we um, one of our staff members is the sort of like the triage person on this conversation. So if someone calls in and says, hey, I think I'm demonized, they meet with her first. Mm-hmm. And interesting, she's a former kindergarten teacher. So it's really, she's amazing at corralling lots of stuff. Yeah. And uh and that that assessment starts right at the beginning, um, right at the beginning. Because, by the way, I just want to say this, and I'm so glad that Tyler just said it. Listen, if you are on meds today, don't get off them from this podcast. You stay on them. Uh, I just want to say that out loud, uh, 100%. So I'm going to give you a story where where both of them converge, Okay, actually. Wonderful. So a guy in our church who I knew really well, uh, Christian, loved Jesus, um, walked up to me randomly one day and said, look, um, I can't get this image out of my head. And it happens every time I walk into church and only in church. I said, okay, what is it? He says, I go up, remember, we're Canadians when I talk about this. So, because we don't have the same experience you as Americans do. Um, he said, I walk up to the balcony, I get a gun and I shoot you in the head while, while you're preaching. And I said, okay, um, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and he said, he said, I don't know what to do with it because it only happens in the building, only when you're preaching. He says, it's so weird. I know you so well, but I hate you when you preach. I just, I have sheer hatred for you. I said, all right. I said, uh, how about we, how we, how about we pray about that? Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's pray. You're like, uh, I'm going to pray about that yeah, with or without that's you. Right. So. And do you have any guns on <laughs> you right now? Yeah. Um, so, so what happened was we got him into, you know, our system. And again, I want to make sure that you know that the system that we have is an incarnational expression of how we do ministry like this in Toronto. It's not Jesus. It's just a system to help people. And um, we very quickly discovered he was bipolar. Um, clinical diagnostic. We work with counselors and clinicians and all sorts of people. So um, if I just can take two seconds to explain this, when someone sub- comes into our system, um, there's a waiver they have to sign, there's a, there's a checklist they do, but then segregated out of that, there's a group of people who have like discernment, words of knowledge and stuff that gather on Saturday mornings or Tuesday mornings or Tuesday nights. 
and they don't know the person at all. And they're just told Mr. or Mrs., him or her. And they pray, and then they gather information what the Holy Spirit says about the person. And then we compare the listening notes, we call them, to the written form to see what's missing, what's a lie. And clear as day in both directions, we were told mental illness and demonic at once. We're like, so this is when it gets really complicated. Yeah. Right? So we're like, okay, you need to stay in your meds. We need to tell you that you're bipolar and it's not going away in this context. Uh, it's staying, but there's something in the middle of you that actually is demonic. So we let him through a renouncing process, you know, the truth encounter stuff. We came to the power encounter moment, and we actually called forth the thing that was demonic. It came forward, and it left. And he was still bipolar today. And he has high swings, the high highs and low lows. And when he's hot, like when he's doing okay, uh, he's amazing and quite spiritually gifted. Like that's the, that's the other thing I've learned in all of this that um, brokenness does not negate God's work in people's lives, mm -hmm. even though I'd write them off as someone who's not like that. Um, but you've got to monitor. That's why it's got to be done in community. Is he still great today? Depends on the day. Some days he's really out of it and weird and makes really stupid decisions about life or family or jobs. But, but that's an example of even in the charismatic listening moment, the Holy Spirit's like, it's mental illness mostly. So... That's the cat. And so stay in your meds. We're going to still watch you when, you know, his connect groups like, hey, when you're being stupid, we're going to call you out on it. Like when you're not, when you're not, when you're manic, we're going to say, you understand how you're acting right now. So that's an example of a both end that can be very common. Lots of times when we pray with people, and I just want to say this out loud, the majority of people we pray for are Christians and many of them are pastors, elders, worship leaders. If it's some of the names I'd say, you know them. Like they're just, you know, and... And they've had this internal conflict for years, and they haven't had the category. And and, and then they're they're just free. Like, I had a pastor this week call me who just went through the process, who I know very well. And every time they went to preach, they would have all sorts of things happen to them. Like, like bizarre things, migraines, houses broken, like just crazy stuff. Every time. They, they weren't the main preaching pastor, but they, you know— and they had said, I suppose this is my cross I need to bear. But that's what they had said. Mm -hmm. And then they said, I wonder why this keeps happening to me. And then when we prayed for them, it stopped. And they were like, what do I do with that? I said, I don't know. Be free and be excited. Like, go preach a message. But it's that type of stuff, the nuance between all of this, that we've got to be really aware of. Yeah. And I, I think just that one thing I'm hearing from you is the importance of the pastoral task and the discernment process. Huge. In because, community. In yeah, community. There, there has to be that, like you said, you have to come out of hiding, not do this alone, do the work in community to discern what is the source of, of the thing or things that are plaguing me. And as Jesus said, what is, what is the Father doing? Well, so then how can I partner with the Father's work in my life? Right. Because if that work isn't done well, then you can hurt people in all sorts of different directions or hurt yourself in all sorts of different directions. And like you saw, again, um, this is not a, a book plug. It's really not. But like— Don't in, worry. I'm going to plug your book Okay, no, end. but you know yeah. I'm embarrassed by that. So— but it, in the book, we even talk about this. Like, we made so many mistakes at the beginning. Yeah. Like, so many mistakes. We hurt people. 
we we said too much. We said too literal. We didn't do follow up. Like you know, the one of the best analogies, Natalie, who's our prayer pastor, she uses. She she classified the three generations of this ministry like this. She said at the beginning, John, you were like it was like a war zone, and you were like a mash medic who became a surgeon in the middle of the field. So you're just walking in, you're covered in blood, and you're just like, you know. And then we moved from that moment when things got a little bit more stable, uh, almost to a midwifing moment where, you know, we were sort of trying to help people. Mm -hmm. And now we're a teaching hospital. And we have all these people being trained. Uh, like we have like 110 volunteers that serve in this ministry, just helping people get set free. We've got two staff members assigned. And actually now I only come in like a surgeon every once in a while. And I actually teach at the teaching hospital, but I'm not doing all the surgeries. Yeah. And and that sort of progression shows you um, how important training and community and all the mistakes we made and the people we hurt and people left our church because we didn't do it right or we theologically hurt someone by mistake because we talked too much. And But but that's, it's impossible to do any ministry without hurting people as you're learning. It's just the nature of trying to do something better. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll close us this way. The the hope from the teaching that you offered last night and from this podcast is to lay a theological foundation that not only can be built on, but must be built on. Right. If this ministry is to be done, if deliverance ministry is to be done in, with any level of maturity, then that has to happen. Yeah. So, you know, what we see in Scripture is that from Genesis to Revelation, there is a conflict between light and darkness that we don't choose to participate in or not participate in. We are participants. Yeah. If, if the scriptures are framing your view and understanding of the world, right. everyone is a participant. And so we are simply trying to say, hey, this is all over the Bible, but we rarely hear about it in our churches and we don't know how to understand it in our culture. So can we start a conversation on what the scripture teaches right. that might lay a foundation to begin building on? So whether you're a pastor from another city, a layperson that's a part of Bridgetown here in Portland or another church, uh, or someone that just kind of got interested in someone passed this podcast along to you, that's what we're trying to lay here. And I would, I do want to plug your book just to say, that your book, Deliverance, gives a thorough biblical theology and then gets into both church history and different traditions. How has this been worked out in local communities and streams of the church throughout history? And then lastly, your own community, where right. this is, you know, a 20-some-odd-year journey right. that you've been on, um, where experience has led to theology, model, and practice. Correct. And, and landing on... How do we do this, and how might we serve the broader church um, as we've drawn from all of these different traditions and mostly planted and rooted ourselves in the revelation of Scripture as the yeah. truth? So thank you so much. Thank you for writing. Thanks for, for beginning a conversation that is really sticky but needs to be had in the church. Much appreciated, brother. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>